0: Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special Audio Highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest on, uh, on West Coast Live is a, uh, is a renowned artist whose uh, who's huge piece in the 70s in many ways changed the art world and it was first presented at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. And it became uh, quite notorious and... and uh, and made her uh, famous in in the art world. And it was called The Dinner Party, the creator, Judy Chicago. And she has a book out, her 12th, uh, about Frida Kahlo, where she talks about it. Please welcome Judy Chicago to West Coast. How do you do? Ooh, I really. love your shoes. Purple sparkles.
1: I like your shoes, too. But Thank I, you. I was admiring them. Thank
0: you. Thank you God, It must seem like just yesterday that you did that piece.
1: No, it seems like a long time oh, ago. Oh, does it? <laughs> Of course, I wasn't finished with that piece till it got permanently housed at the Brooklyn Museum in 2007. So it stayed with me for a long time.
0: So it's 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 there in place. People can go see it, uh, as it as it was.
1: People are coming from all over the world to see it. And in fact, I'm happy to report that the Elizabeth A. Sackler Center for Feminist Art, where the dinner party is the centerpiece and the dinner party, uh, count for one third of the traffic to the Brooklyn Museum. Wow, wow.
0: All right. Okay. The power of art. All right. All right. So for people who weren't alive in
1: 1974.
0: 9. 9. No, right no, nine. No. There, there what what how did the dinner party come about?
1: Well, actually you could say there's a relationship between uh the dinner party and the Callow book, a strange relationship because uh when I was at UCLA, uh it I took when I was an undergraduate, I took a course in the intellectual history of Europe by a renowned historian who said that at the last class he would talk about women 's contributions. So I waited all semester, because I was a very ambitious young girl. From the time I was very young, I wanted to be an artist and I wanted to make a contribution to history. So he comes in at the last class I can still remember him, tweed jacket perfect for Berkeley, you know, leather arm things. And, oh, maybe that's gone out of style by now. Anyway, so he comes in, strides to the front, and he says, women's contributions, they made none. (gasps) Okay, so, you know, for a long time, I believed that. And for the first decade of my professional practice in Los Angeles, I felt like a freak because it was a really decidedly macho atmosphere, and I thought I had no precedence, which happens to a lot of women artists. So in the early nineteen, the end of the 1960s, beginning of the 1970s, I started looking back in history to see if my professor's assessment was true, and I also began to look at female artistic predecessors to see if I had any. And at that time, Frida Kahlo was known only as Diego Rivera's wife, who also paints. And I started apparently—I don't exactly remember this, but. I started lecturing and showing slides of some of the women artists I had been finding, and there was a young student there named Christopher Lyon, who I did not meet, and he, it was the first time he'd ever heard of Frida Kahlo, and he grew up to be the New York editor-in-chief of Prestel. And so when Prestel wanted to do a book about Kahlo, Chris thought about this, and he thought, maybe it would be interesting to ask me to do that, and the other connection between, although when I started, I didn't think there were any connections between me and Callow. I just thought it was an interesting project. And during the course of the research I did and the writing, I discovered there were some parallels between Callow and me, and actually, notably, what you started to describe me you know, in terms of the dinner party is a consistent problem for women artists is that they get known for only a portion of their body of art. So so for me, it was, you know, of course, it's the dinner party, which is only one work in a large, prodigious body of art. For Callow, it's her self-portraits. Her production was small, about 180 paintings, 80 of which were self-portraits, but 40 were still lifes. And that's a pretty substantial section of her work. And so what I wanted to do is what I hope Will happen for more of us women artists is to look at her whole body of art.
0: One of the other, uh, this is Judy Chicago. One of the other parallels that you you noticed was the role of your fathers. Yeah.
1: Well, both of us uh, had were influenced, deeply influenced by our fathers. For Callow she worked, she didn't have any traditional art training, and one of the really astounding things about her level of achievement is it's very unusual for a self-trained artist to achieve at the level she has. But her only visual experience was working in her father's photo studio when she was young, where she learned to retouch photos using these little tiny brushes, which she continued to use with her paintings, which is one reason they're so small. Also the fact that she painted in a wheelchair, she painted in bed. But then when after the tragic accident, bus accident, when she was 19, her parents set up an easel for her in bed during her year-long recuperation. And when I was looking at her work, I mean, her father's influence and then the effect of the accident on her. When you're young, Trauma tends to teach you about fragility and vulnerability of life. And that happened to me, too, because my father died when I was 13.
0: But he was somebody who stayed home with you in the afternoon sometimes and would teach you.
1: Well, he came home. He worked worked at night. My mother worked in the day. My father was a labor organizer. You know, he was a renegade Jew. He rebelled against his tradition, 23 generations of rabbis he came from. He was supposed to carry it on. Some rabbi said to me... uh, it's all right, Moses was the first labor organizer. <laughs> so, but anyway, so he, because he worked at night, I'd wake up from my naps when I was a child, a little baby, and my mother wouldn't be there. And my father, my father really trained me. He trained me to think, he trained me in logic, he trained me in values. Like we had a, a, a I had somebody who took care of me, her name was already blue and she was African American and I can remember this, I was like four years old, he would play this game with me. We're walking down the street and we run into Ordi Blue and then we run into Norman Black and then we see Sally Green and what he was teaching me was that color and people's value are not necessarily connected. And the other thing that I think he infused me with, even though he was definitely a secular Jew, and his relationship to Judaism can best be summed up by something that happened when he and my mother were courting when they went to my grandmother, the wife of the late rabbi, for dinner on Friday night. And one night, my mother said to my father, when they were leaving, do you want me to learn to cook kosher? And my father said, no, Jewish food makes me sick. (laughs) But nevertheless, <laughs> nevertheless, our household was infused with Jewish values, uh, social justice, the idea that it's one's responsibility to make a contribution to a better world. I mean, it wasn't until later when my husband, photographer Donald Woodman, and I took up our study of the Holocaust and Jewish culture and history that I began to realize actually how much Jewish values had shaped my work, my attitude. I mean, even the dinner party. I mean, here I was at the height of modernism, you know, which is all about formal values, and i come up with this idea of teaching through art. Now, where did that come from, right? It's that old rabbinic blood. Yeah. Of course, my, my, all those rabbis would probably have turned over their grave if they'd seen the dinner party. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you, you had your own trauma, too. I mean, you, you, were, you were hit by a truck shortly after you got married. That affected how you probably identified with Frida Kahlo's experience and, and the role of pain in creating art?
1: Well, I already knew about the fragility of life. In fact, I mean, I can still remember when I was young and, you know, my friends were like, oh, well, you know, I have lots of time. You know, I always felt this incredible sense of urgency because I'm astounded I've lived this long. You know, I, you know, I just knew, like, one minute you're alive and one next minute you can be dead. And so I always had this in- incredible urgency to, like, seize... The moment and use the time that I've had. I think the thing about pain, because of course that is very basic to Callow's oeuvre, right? Um, Is you know you can have pain and that becomes an, an end in itself, or you can transform pain into images of meaning that other people can relate to. And of course, that's one of Callow's great accomplishments, is that she was able to take her personal experience and her personal pain and translate it into universal images.
0: There are, there's a series of, of paintings here, images in, in the book, too, on, on the miscarriage, which was clearly a very unusual topic for painting.
1: Well, it's in the last section. What I wrote the book with an art historian, a British art historian named Francis Borzello, because when Chris asked me to work on this project, you know, I'm not an art historian. I wanted an art historian to work with me. And the, the painting you're talking about was in the last section of the book. The two reasons I wanted to work with Francis was, one, she's an expert on the history of female self-portraiture, which, curiously enough, is a context into which c- Callow is... C- rarely been put, and secondly because she's an expert on the relationship of uh, women and still life painting. But when we looked at her overall body of art, we grouped it into nine themes, and the painting you're talking about is in the ninth theme called Inside Out where we argue that one of Callow's really important achievements is that she signaled the moment when women artists began for the first time in history to claim the right to use our own experience as the subject matter for art and that that art should be as central and as meaningful as the art of our male counterparts and so she also prefigured many of the themes that would come to uh, typify feminist art as it moved around the globe including birth, miscarriage, the body, the construction of identity and that particular image, my birth, which is an image of birth and the Henry Ford Hospital drawing which deals with miscarriage, those are probably some of the earliest images of birth and miscarriage in the history of art. But when I was here in the Bay Area, working on the Birth Project, which is a series of images combining paint, painting and needlework, I didn't realize her that work was not well known, and I thought I was working in a complete iconographic void, that there were no images of birth in the history of Western art. And that's one of the problems of the marginalization of women's art and feminist art, is that women don't, aren't able to learn what women before them thought and taught and created, and so they often repeat the same themes, and that's an institutional failure. That's the result of how institutions have not yet incorporated that information into the mainstream of both art institutions and education.
0: Do you think that there's a a further sort of marginalization among women artists that goes on, where uh, there are a few women artists who are singled out? George (laughs) O'Keeffe, Judy Chicago, Frida Frida Kahlo, and the entire other range of, of fascinating, compelling artwork being done by women then gets overlooked. It's like, okay, you know, here are women artists, you know, here's a three or four of them, there, there are women artists, and and the rest get ignored.
1: Yeah, there's an, it, it has to do with exceptionalizing. Uh, in exceptionalizing. Book, exceptionalizing individual women. I, in the book, I talk about Frida Kahlo as the Elizabeth Blackwell of the art world, because in Elizabeth Blackwell was the first woman to enter medical school in America at the end of the 19th century, and she was admitted as a joke. And even so, she graduated cum laude, but her achievement did not open the way for other women. In fact, the college then passed a law prohibiting women from entering that school. And so what that means, again, is what I was talking about is how repetition happens, is that one woman's achievement does not open the doorway or become a path for other women artists or other groups that are left out or marginalized. And that's, okay, by plucking one woman out. And O'Keeffe is a fantastic example. For example, there's—you know—I live in New Mexico. There's the George O'Keeffe Museum in Santa Fe, and there were a number of women artists who were working at the same time as O'Keeffe, whose achievement is equivalent: Emily Carr, Frida Kahlo, a fantastic painter named Agnes Pelton. The Georgia O'Keeffe Museum has positioned O'Keeffe in the history of male modernism. So out of 42 exhibitions, only two focused on women, and in a show on modernism, out of, four, I don't know, 49 artists, there were four women, some horrible percentage. And what they have consistently refused to do is show her in relation to her peers. The only time they ever did that was in a show called the, uh, Women of the Steiglitz Circle, and they made sure that O'Keeffe's work was way better than any other work in the show, so that she retained her exceptional position.
0: Rather than putting her into a context of, of what was being done at the time, so what made her stand out? Was it the relationship with Alfred Steiglitz?
1: Well, I mean, Af- Alfred, you know, one of the problems has always been a lack of support. You know, support is what makes the difference between achievement in private and achievement in public. You have to have support. You have, you know, I mean, Callow had the support of her family. She had the support of the artistic milieu that Rivera introduced her into. Uh, O'Keeffe had the support of one of the most prominent gallerists at the time. I mean, Alfred Stieglitz was as important in terms of his gallery in New York, 291, in which he promoted and supported artists as he was as a photographer. So to have that kind of support behind her allowed her a level of access to the art world that many other women never achieve.
0: do you, Are you kind of perpetuating exceptionalism by doing a book on Frida Kahlo?
1: I think one of the things we've done is we've tried to actually put her in a context uh-huh. that allows her work to be seen. For example, there's a section on a painting by Frida Kahlo of her sitting there smoking a marijuana cigarette with a doll next to her on the bed. and. That painting, at the same time we were writing our book, in which we put that image in the context of a 100 years of work by women artists that included a doll image, and in all of them, amazingly, across geography, century, and culture, the doll is sitting in the same position. At the same time, a curator, Wrote a book in relationship to this show in Europe and Berlin and Vienna and interpreted that same painting as Frida Kahlo sitting there like she's a prostitute waiting for a customer, which is a complete internalization of the male gaze, number one. Now,
0: Might be a little projection on his part.
1: It was her. It was, a Sorry, it was a woman? It was a woman. That's what I mean. A woman that. wrote that. I'm, I, that's what I mean about the internalization of the male gaze because the only context she has in her mind is art history, and Toulouse-Lautrec's paintings of prostitutes, the Modigliani's paintings of prostitutes, you know, what your previous guest was talking about, models who then, of course, had affairs with the male artists, that's the tradition she's working out of, and that's a very limited tradition. It's one tradition to look at Kala's work, but isn't it interesting that all these women painted dolls? Doesn't that seem to suggest uh, the, like the need for art historical research, scholarship, and analysis. The other failure about Frida Kahlo's work in terms of the way it's been presented, and O'Keeffe, is that it's always presented in relationship to her biography. And the point- and
0: Diego Rivera.
1: And Diego Rivera, or O'Keeffe and Stylus. And the point I make in the book is that, okay, imagine this. Uh, Lee Krasner, who was married to Jackson Pollock, Lee Krasner and Jackson Pollock have a f- horrible fight on Thursday night, and Pollock's so pissed off that the next day he goes into his, canva- into his studio, and he spews paint all over the canvas, and thus was born abstract expressionism. Inconceivable, but it's done all the time for Callow and O'Keefe.
0: You know, I, I knew Frida Callow. But it was the name taken by a guerrilla girl.
1: Oh yes, sure, of course, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: and uh, you know, the, and the idea of trying to—I uh, mean—use humor and ridicule and sarcasm to sort of enlarge and and sort of break up the the monopoly of that male gaze and uh, taking the names of these artists. And and I—I I don't know how fa- effective over time, you know, the guerrilla girls movement, you know, was. But uh, it was uh, it was exhilarating and really sort of poked a sharp stick at this at this art world. You you live in uh, New Mexico, uh, a small town. Uh, you work in fiber and, and glass and, and through all the different other art that you, you you do. What what is your what's in your studio? Is it is it tightly organized? Is it chaotic? Do you have material neatly organized? Do you have a storage warehouse? I mean,
1: uh, Donald and I live in uh fabulous uh, old building, uh, 7,000 square feet, foot, uh, 19, built in 1907 by a woman, former railroad hotel in a small town uh, south of Albuquerque where we have delicious peace and quiet. And it's only a half an hour from the airport. And it, we have a temperature controlled art storage facility uh, attached to that. We often get visitors, you know, or sometimes we have interns, and they'll come into the art storage facility, and I joke, I say, yeah, one of the things they never tell you about in art school is art storage, and they go, oh, I'm going to sell all my work. And I'm like, oh, really? Andy Warhol died with 100,000 objects in in his possession, and you're going to sell all your work? What are you, (laughs) dreaming?" Anyway, there's something for everybody in our space, because we have like his and her studios, right? Donald's a photographer. And it, I, I'm very neat, very organized, very clean. You go into Donald's studio, and you have to sign a waiver so that in case you fall <laughs> over something. But he knows where everything is in all those files. It's just astonishing. <laughs> do, you,
0: do you have like stacks? Of, I mean, what, what's material that you're kind of working with now?
1: Well, I'm working, I'm doing, I'm working in glass. I started working in glass in 2003. And I think glass, I I love glass. I I love glass. I mean, if you think about my work over the years, you know, looking below appearances, trying to understand what the reality below the surface, I mean, you can see right through glass, right? So I'm working in glass. I've, I've worked... Unless
0: it's opaque. Well translucent
1: translucent yes but you know you can also have areas that are transparent just like people okay so I'm working I'm working in glass I'm also finishing a series of prints it's called The retrospective in a box it's seven lithographs surveying my career that I'm doing at a fantastic print shop in Santa Fe called Landfall Press they moved from Chicago and I call it a starter set for collectors because a lot of times people don't know where to start in my career. That's a very
0: clever marketing idea.
1: So then you can get a little bit of everything. So, I mean, I'm really, really busy. And um, next year there's going to be this incredible um, undertaking in Southern California that's sponsored by the Getty. Uh, it involves every institution from Santa Barbara to San Diego, it's called Pacific Standard Time and it's going to document and celebrate the history of Southern California art and one of the reasons I'm so excited about it is because my California roots have sort of been getting obscured recently and I really feel that as macho as the art scene was in LA in the 1960s when I came up Still, there was a spirit of experimentation, freedom, and self-invention in California that I think allowed me to even imagine the kind of radical shift I made when I set down the path you know, to create a feminist art pr- pr- practice and invent a new kind of education for women. I, I don't think that could have happened in New York with the shadow of Europe. I think it could only have happened in California. And so I'm looking forward to having my uh, roots reaffirmed and my work looked at again in the context of California art.
0: Well, when that uh, shows up and you're out here, come back again. Would you talk to us some more?
1: Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Judy Chicago.
1: Very nice to meet you.
0: Her new book, her 12th, is called Frida Kahlo, Face to Face. Judy Chicago with Francis Borrezzello. Published by Prestel. Thank you. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here. And we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.